Hey, welcome to night school. I don't know the number offhand, and I don't really care. I got my second cup of coffee, so I know that. I've got my second cup of coffee right here. Uh, and this episode is going to be more of a self-help, motivational sort of episode. Who knows where it will spin off from there. And some of this may have been discussed on earlier episodes, but... I think as the theme of this episode unfolds, the importance of saying things over and over again and making certain decisions over and over again is important. And that goes for the things you say and the things you think in addition to your actions. So in doing episodes like this where I may be a little bit redundant, God knows I'm very redundant uh, when it comes to anything, Uh, But, you know, in doing this, I think there's an importance to saying things I may have already said. And in doing that, I think you do come up with new ideas based on that. It's only through thinking about things that you've already thought that you add on to them. Uh, So this episode will be a little more about, you know, some of the, the drinking recovery fitness and that type of thing. So, you know, if you don't want to hear about that, this isn't a great episode. And I have to say, too, that every night's a school night July episode is going to come out someday, someday within the month of July 2019. Uh, You know, it could be one of those little technicalities where I'm like, it's going to be out in July. And then it's like July 2020. It's going to be my Chinese democracy to make a tired joke. Every night's a Chinese school night. Oh, you know, things really jumped the shark once he kept talking about, you know, that every night's a Chinese school night July episode. The entire episode's going to be in Chinese. Uh, So uh, this episode, though, uh, what I was thinking about this morning and what I've been thinking about this entire summer so far, it's been about a, you know, a little less than a month of true summer is just how this time of year, you know, drinking is such an emphasis and people almost have a seasonal license to drink more. Or if they don't drink very much at all, they tend to go to barbecues, they go to they float down the river. They do all kinds of things. The nice weather, you know, it feels really fucking good to be standing outside on a summer day with a drink, an alcoholic drink. And uh, you know, and I do miss that. I think in not drinking the last couple of years, it's hasn't been quite two years, but it's creeping up. Uh, in not doing that, you know, I have to admit when I miss certain experiences, because people have this tendency to, they quit drinking, they get in some sort of recovery group, and they're not allowed to admit to themselves that they actually did enjoy aspects of drinking. It's almost like if they admit that there were good times in addition to the bad times, you know, they're going to fall back into it. And maybe they will. Maybe that's how some people work. But it's important for me to remember, just like any relationship, you know, just because it ended badly, just because the bad ultimately outweighed the good or it didn't work out, doesn't mean you have to go back with this revisionist attitude and being like, oh, it's all bad. That night when I had just a blast at my friend's birthday party and nothing bad happened and we just, we really bonded. That was horrible because I was drinking. You know, I know people who have done that and if that works for them, again, I'll say this over and over again and it's, it's a problem you run into anytime you give an opinion on something because I'm a big fan of preaching. I'm a big, I'm a, eh, I'm a big fan of not being able to say anything. Uh, I'm a big fan of preaching what you need. So anytime I give an opinion... 
you know, sometimes maybe it's a judgment on someone else, maybe sometimes, but a lot of the time it's coming from a place of this is what works for me and this is what doesn't work for me. And in simply saying what works for me, other people hear that and think, oh, he thinks the way I do things sucks. And there's no greater body of evidence, there's no greater reason to do something than it's simply working for you. So if something works for you, nothing I can say can take that away from you, unless there's some seed of doubt already in your brain that it's not working. And it's a sensitive subject with recovery in particular, because so many people have different backgrounds and reasons or non-reasons for falling into you know, an alcoholic black hole at some point in their lives that requires them to get out, to deliberately get out. And it is deliberate. It has to be deliberate. That's something that everybody has in common. That's something that anybody who wants to quit any kind of negative behavior, especially a substance abuse uh, issue, it requires a very deliberate decision. And decisions are at the core of, of the entire topic. And what people don't realize until they've done it is you can make that decision to quit drinking, which is what I did at one point. I had always tried to cut back, not always, but I, I'd gone through periods where I'd be like, I'm cutting back. And I'd gone, you know, as much as, as a, a month or so without drinking, you know, after I fell into the hole. You know, before that, I could do that all the time and it didn't matter. When I was in my early 20s, I didn't drink much. But by the time I was in my mid 20s, I was falling deeper into that hole. And so you have to make a decision to get out of it. And it can feel like simply making that decision. You make that decision, oh, I, I quit drinking today. I'm out of the hole. But you actually have to do it. It's an ongoing process. You have to continually make that decision. It's a daily decision. You don't just quit one day and, you, and oh, it, you're in a process of quitting. You are quitting. And that's going to require you making a lot of decisions. And that's where I think people get overwhelmed because they think, oh, I can announce that I quit drinking, get that dopamine get all those pats on the back, all that support. Oh, but I've got to do this every day. I thought once I decided to quit that I was just done. You know, I think a lot of people go in with that mindset and no, it's going to be daily and some days are going to be easier than others. And for me personally, it's been a relatively easy process, but I never let myself truly believe that. And I have had a couple nights that were incredibly tempting. I was with a certain group of people, you know, I was with it was the circumstances were right. A couple months ago I was in California with some of my just absolute brothers of this earth. And I was tempted because there was expensive alcohol. I was with the few people that I feel like are truly my people on this earth. And it was just like, man, this would be the night. If there was ever a night to have a drink, this would be it. But I held back. I didn't do it. I had to make a decision. And it had been a while since I had to make that decision. Because that's what ends up happening. Is Even though I say you can kind of get overwhelmed early on in the process. Because, oh, God, I got to make this decision every day. Uh, you know, you do reach a point when you do that every day where it becomes a discipline. And you don't really have to make that decision as much as you used to, even at a bar. Because for me, when I quit, and I, I wouldn't recommend this to anybody else, but again, this is what worked for me, I decided to immerse myself. I decided right away to keep going to bars, to keep getting into situations where other people were drinking, people that I used to drink with even, and because uh, I wanted to be around it. I didn't want to be afraid of it. 
I wanted to test myself, you know, early on too. And maybe my problem wasn't as bad as other people's. Maybe there are people who really shouldn't be in a bar once they've quit drinking. Maybe they really shouldn't hang out with the people that they used to get blackout drunk with. I don't know. I think that's true for a lot of people. A lot of people can't handle it. And and for those people, you know, recovery groups, recovery programs, therapy, all of that is very important. And just because I haven't used those methods doesn't mean those aren't great. And those don't help people. Again, just because I'm saying what works for me, and I may get a little intense about you know the, that process, describing that process, doesn't mean that I think everything else is bullshit. I mean, personally, I hate the idea of going to some sort of recovery, AA sort of group. I hate the idea of going to therapy to talk about it. I think therapy is great for all kinds of reasons. But I don't think there, speaking of reasons, I don't think there's a true reason why I, you know, had a problem with drinking. I don't think there's a true, like, root cause. And I think people, you know, they try to think too hard about that. And if someone has legitimate trauma in their background, you know, so much substance abuse does trace back to some sort of early trauma. And for that person, their sort of recovery process is going to be very different than mine. And so I'm not going to, you know, try to gloat over that person and say, oh, you had to join, you know, this group and you had to go to, you know, some sort of inpatient treatment and you had to do, you had to do this. And that's not as good as me just because I, you know, decided to lift weights and run all the time, you know, and, and uh, meditate or, you know, whatever it is, you know, that I do that's aided in my recovery those co-disciplines, you know, it's different for everybody. Everybody has a different background. And that's an unfortunate part of recovery is, and it doesn't just include the people who are recovering, it includes basically everybody you know, is there's this constant kind of comparison. It's almost like a competition. And I've seen this happen with people I, I've known who have been part of recovery groups where if you're in a recovery group, which I, I have no experience actually participating, but I've had a number of friends and I've talked to them a lot about what goes on in those groups. And one common theme is this element of competition where you're always going to have somebody whose problem was worse than you. And you're always going to have someone whose problem was not as bad as yours. And I think when someone's in sort of a, a recovery group environment and you see somebody, you know, maybe you got blackout drunk every weekend, uh, but you're going to have somebody who, you know, had a crack problem in addition to drinking all day, every day for years on end, and they ruined their life. They killed somebody in an accident, you know, all kinds of things. It can just build and build. And there's always going to be somebody with a story that's more harrowing. There's always going to be somebody who's recovery was easier than yours. There's always going to be someone whose recovery was significantly more difficult than yours. And that shouldn't stop you from talking about what works for you. That shouldn't stop you from being proud of what you've done. And I, if someone, you know, was molested as a kid and therefore, you know, developed these unhealthy coping mechanisms throughout their life and ended up addicted to, you know, various substances and dependent on alcohol, my personal story can't help them. Or maybe it can. I don't know. I'm not going to say I can't. Somebody can't take something of value from what I've learned. But I would never say, this is going to work for you. Oh, I got I got the system for you. Oh, you're a woman and you, you know, you, you stepdad. Uh, you know, I'm not even going to, why, why get into that? Uh, you know, whereas for me, it's like, yeah, you know, I've had a pretty damn good life 
in most respects. You know, I grew up in a, a middle class environment, you know, a product of divorce, but I would have to really search to try to find some root cause. And I think that's something that people get distracted by. Like I said, if you have some serious trauma, if you have some serious issue you really need to work through in therapy, I think you, you have to do that. You can't pick and choose what's going to help you. You have to just, you have to do what is, you, you have to experiment. You have to try different things to see what's going to help you. And you can't necessarily choose what is actually going to help. So if certain things aren't working, you have to try other things that you may not like. And that might be something like going to a therapist or joining AA or going to a rehab center. You know, that, that might be the case. And there's no shame in that. Because the way I, the way I see it is like you're climbing a rock wall, and you know like kind of like those climbing gyms where there's like little nubs you grab onto, and you can't necessarily choose where those nubs appear, especially if you're scaling a true cliff. You know, it's one thing if you're at the rock gym and they've put a bunch of these nubs in places where they know people are going to reach, but if you're actually climbing, you know, a rock wall where little bits of rock jut out here and there, you're not going to be able to choose which you know, rocks you grab hold of. You're not going to be able to choose which way you climb. You're going to have to choose what works, what's going to get you to the top. So there's no, so there's no shame in that way in going that way or going this way or having to go back down, realizing that, oh, I climbed up that way and I realized there's nowhere else for me to go. I literally can't reach anywhere else. So I have to climb back down and go another way. And that always feels shitty. Nobody wants to climb back down a little ways, but if you think about it in the sense that, oh, if I climb back down a little bit, I'm going to be able to climb back up that way because there are things I can grab hold of over there. There are places where I can get footing, and I think that's true for recovery especially where, you know, you want to do it a certain way. It's like, oh, I'm going to do it this way, and then you, you find out like, oh, uh, that's not working. I, I think I'm going to have to do it that way that I really didn't want. It's going to be expensive. It's going to disrupt my life, but I'm already disrupting my life, you know? Something is seriously not working, so I might as well include all possibilities. But I think an issue I have with the the therapy approach is if somebody doesn't have some major trauma in their background or some obvious issue they need to work through, and it may not be obvious to them, the person receiving help, but if there wasn't some like something catastrophic, I think sometimes we try to spend too much time searching for some little thing. That birthday when you didn't get what you wanted. And it's so easy to blame your parents, too. People do that often. Uh, otherwise well-meaning parents get blamed for all kinds of stuff in people's lives. And part of that, I think, is the, the sort of the industry side of therapy, where you're paying this person to help you with these problems, and if you don't know what those problems are, and and I haven't been in therapy, and I obviously haven't provided therapy, so I don't know what actually goes on, but I did work in a business for many years who that was directly related to therapy, directly related to that whole uh, business. Just I wasn't involved; the business wasn't involved in the actual process of therapy sort of an auxiliary or something, adjacent field. Uh, but for me personally, it's like I, I've seen where people are just trying to find that little, uh, it's like they're searching for this footnote that is going to solve all their problems. And, you know, they can hold on to that. And then 
in going to therapy, they're like, oh, this was actually the source of all my problems. And you end up like putting all this weight on some minor little thing, like not getting a certain toy for a birthday party. You know, it could seriously be like that. You know, you think about those kids who flip out when they get the wrong color iPhone for Christmas and like hate their parents for it. And I feel like that process plays out in therapy offices around the country. I'm not going to say world, but in certainly in the country, because I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen with people I know where they end up kind of pinpointing some weird little detail. And it's like, you really think that that was a, the source of all these other problems? Maybe it was, but maybe you getting, maybe whatever that, maybe whatever that was, like you getting upset about the iPhone, the wrong color iPhone, you have to see that as a symptom. You know, you have to look at almost everything as more of a symptom because actually being able to get to the root cause, like I said, unless there was something catastrophic, unless there was some major trauma, it's very difficult to truly pinpoint. And I don't think that there was any real reason why I drank a lot. I don't think there was any true reason for it. I've really, I've done a lot of searching on this. I've done a lot of talking done a lot of thinking. I just, I can't find any core reason. But if I was paying somebody to give me reasons or to like, you know, analyze every footnote of my entire history, they'd probably find something. Oh, your parents got divorced. That's it. That's it. Uh, You know, uh, meanwhile, if you live in a home with parents who can't get along, you know, that's another reason. Oh, if your parents had stayed together, they would have fought and you would have drank because of that. Oh, your parents got a divorce and uh, you're drinking because of that. You can always find some excuse or reason. And, you know, I would never try to give advice to somebody who actually has had something serious to work through. I would never try to give advice to them. But I would also try to say, don't discount what I'm saying just because it doesn't match your experience. And I can get a little bit aggro. That's the thing, too, is I'm very proud of the fact that, you know, I've been able to not drink this far. You know, it doesn't feel like a long time, but yet it does. Well, here's, here's, here's how I'd put it. You know, it's been like a year and, I don't know, close to a year and eight months or something like that. And uh, it feels like a long time since I drank. It, it does. But when I actually think about, oh, under two years, that's not very long at all. I can't get overconfident. But I am proud this, you know, I am proud of the process I've, I've taken thus far. You know, I am proud of the way I've done it. And for me, when I'm proud of something, sometimes I might seem a little intense about it, but that's not a way to discount what works for other people. But I would say at the core of everybody's experience is making that decision over and over again. And that's how you gain control. That's how you overcome whatever issue it is you're dealing with. You make that decision. And it's not just quitting. And I emphasize quitting over I quit. I would never say I quit drinking. I quit. I would say I'm quitting. I'm in a process of quitting. And just because the question doesn't come up very often for me now doesn't mean it doesn't come up. But there was a point where I had to make that decision a lot more often. I had to develop almost like a a psychic muscle memory, which I guess wouldn't be a muscle memory at all. Uh, But I almost had to develop some kind of like psychic muscle memory. I had to basically ingrain it into my subconscious that that's a decision I make and I make continually. And just like with a mantra, just like with any kind of self-help, you write your goals down. Well, making that decision to not drink is much like writing a goal down. It's something you do every day, and eventually it becomes ingrained in you, and you start making decisions without thinking about it. 
Like you start, rather, you start, your behavior starts to reflect whatever it is you've ingrained in your subconscious. If it's a goal, that means you start intuitively doing things that are going to help you reach that goal. And it's the same thing for quitting something where you go, okay, you know, this decision I made, this decision I've continued to make is starting to become so ingrained in me that my behaviors just reflect that and I don't have to think about it anymore. And that's great. And the thing that a lot of people don't talk about is maybe they do, maybe they do in these groups that I'm not a part of, but uh, something that I don't really hear publicly that much is, you know, dealing with when the momentum dies. Because when I made the decision to quit, it was like I felt high, you know, and especially a couple weeks later when I'd gone out, you know, to a party and people were drinking and I didn't, and I had that experience of, you know, leaving a bar late in the early a.m. and being totally sober and being able to drive home. It was surreal. I mean, that was an experience I just did not have for years. I did not know what it felt like to leave a bar late at night and not be, you know, veering on blackout territory. You know, I, I don't really know what that feels like to leave a bar and just get in your car and drive home, you know, and I wasn't really much, you know, I, I, Never pushed it with the driving thing. Fortunately, I, I walked. Um, but but just to leave a bar and to be able to get in a car, to be a designated driver, to you know see the lights, you know to see everything, to see the way the night actually looks as a sober person was totally new and intoxicating in its own right. But it's once that newness wears off, once that momentum wears off. And I, I'm not going to say wears off. It doesn't wear off. But once that momentum becomes normal, just like, you know, drinking. I mean, it, it's it's funny how similar that process is where you, you know, you, you drink for the first time and you get that buzz right away and it feels great and you're having fun. And even if you puke and whatever, it's it's still all fun. And that buzz feels so different. But then when that when that buzz or that drunkenness becomes normal and you don't really feel it as much, you're less aware of it. I think that's very similar to, you know, the momentum that goes into quitting where you have all this momentum and you're, you know, you want to tell the world, but you're, you're restraining it because it's annoying when someone just won't shut up about not drinking. Uh, but like you just have that and you're, you're bustling with energy and you feel better. You physically feel so much fucking better consistently. You're not derailing yourself every week or every other day or whatever it is you're doing or every day. Uh, you're, you're no longer derailing yourself. So you have all this new physical energy and you're probably having some epiphanies about life. You're probably seeing things differently. And if you're also bringing in other disciplines, that's other momentum. For me, I'd already been working out. I'd already gotten pretty serious about working out and you know changing my diet. So I was fortunately able to hit the ground running when I quit drinking. I was like, okay, well, I'm already into working out. I'm already into eating healthy. So I'm just going to ramp that up. I'm going to focus on that even more. And I don't think there's anything wrong from that kind of displacement, like where it, it's not like I'm filling the hole left by partying by just working out, but it's like I'm able to put more emphasis on that. It's not like it's the same thing, but it, it is, it, you know, in, in some degree it is. It's, it's using your time for something. And I think time is the one thing you also learn that you have a lot more of when you stop you know, abusing alcohol or another substance. You're suddenly like, man, I don't, I don't remember having this much time at night. 
even an hour at a bar. You know, think about that. You know, driving to the bar or back or walking. For me, I walked uh, downtown frequently, which was about a half hour walk. And so, uh, you know, you tack on a half hour onto each end, and God knows how long you're going to spend at the bar. You know, so that's a lot of time. That's a lot of time. Even if you did that once a week, once a month, that's still a chunk of time that you can use for something else. Uh, so, you know, there's all these sensations that go along with, you know, the process of quitting. And, you know, so many people, they want treats, they want goodies. And those, you know, those epiphanies or the, that feeling good, those are sort of like long form treats. And even though they're happening relatively quickly after you have started the recovery process, there reaches a point where those little treats aren't really getting you, they're not really getting you a buzz anymore. It's just like drinking or, you know, substance abuse where you're no longer feeling that fresh high or that fresh, you know, buzz, buzz. Uh, and that's when it becomes difficult because you're like, I'm bored. And if I wanted to pinpoint one reason why I had a problem with drinking, it was boredom. It's not that I'm not interested in life. It's not that I don't have hobbies and interests and things I like to do, but there was sort of this, you know, sort of feeling of empty boredom and we, or whatever it is people say, whatever it is fancy people say, I say boredom. I'm bored. I used to be bored a lot as someone who did a lot. It was weird because I would feel very bored and boredom leads to restlessness. It leads to anxiety. So I would think I got to get out of my house or I got to do something to deal with this, just this feeling of boredom and restlessness. I've got to do something about it. I can go to the bar. I can go to the liquor store. And so there was this kind of like just essential boredom somewhere in my life. And I was just like, you know, even if I had a girlfriend, it didn't matter what was going on in my life. There was always this kind of recurring boredom I would find myself in. Uh, so experiencing the opposite, you know, these let's say two or three months, four months, could be, I think six, let's say six months, six months of like epiphanies and energy and momentum. And then when that becomes normal, you go, I'm bored. And that's why I drank. So this is still, I still have to keep making that decision. But I actually found that I was growing less bored. You know, even though things kind of became, even though the recovery process and the other disciplines that I was integrating into my life became kind of old hat pretty quickly, I, w I did find that I was less bored than I was in years past. I don't know what that was. Maybe it was just filling my time with more things. I don't know. Uh, just I, Part of it's just rewiring your brain. You have to not let yourself dwell in certain places. You have to prod yourself. You have to make yourself uncomfortable. You have to challenge who you are and, and be willing to let your identity go away completely because that's what keeps a lot of people drinking. That's what keeps a lot of people, you know, drinking especially. I'm not going to say drugs as much because, you know, I, I don't have experience like with hard drug dependency, anything like that. Um, I know that I have a lot of potential for it, uh, if my life had gone in a different direction, but I, I have no experience with that. Uh, I've used various substances. That's all I'll say. I'm not going to give you a, a whole list. I'm not going to give you my entire resume of substance abuse. I'll say I've experienced a lot, but, uh, as far as stuff that I would consider a, a true, problem that I had to address, drinking and to some degree marijuana dependency, which is a subject for another time. And I hope that with the legalization of marijuana, I hope that we can have some 
very uh, true discussions of the pros and cons of being a marijuana user. Because I think because of its illegal status and all of the bullshit that went along with that, all of the misinformation, I think I've been hesitant to actually criticize weed or think critically. I don't want to say criticize, but to think critically about marijuana publicly or with people because I don't want to I don't, I don't want to contribute to the you know reefer madness mentality. I don't want weed to be to be demonized in any way. And as I've mentioned on recent episodes, I do smoke again. You know, I do smoke weed again, uh, but my relationship to it is different. Uh, at least I'm telling myself that. No, it is, and and the way I, I see weed is very different than it was then. Uh, but so I don't have experience with the hard drug thing. I don't know what that's like. I, I really don't. But I know drinking and I know drinkers. And one thing I know about a lot of drinkers, especially in certain subcultures I'm familiar with, is there's a sense of pride. You know, we're drinking beer. You know, uh, we're, yo, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna drink so much beer tonight. It's what we do. You know, we're punks, we're metalheads, we're this, we're that. Every subculture finds its own excuse to drink. I like how you can you can't even try. You know, the only people that really, <laughs> the only people that you really like that really don't have that as a part of their subculture is like Christians and uh, you know straight edge hardcore kids. You know, but they will eventually. They'll have to go through it eventually. Uh, but it's just funny how that becomes ingrained in someone's identity. Like I'm a guy. When you see me, I got a beer in my hand. You see me, uh, every time you see me, I have a beer in my hand. It's part of who I am. I'm one of those guys. I'm a lot of fun. I'm loud. And for that person, the idea of like taking that component out feels like a complete loss of identity. But I think loss of identity is important. And there's a reason why that's such a recurring theme in uh, spiritual activities, because that loss of identity, that loss of self, that some amount of ego death is important, and, and that's part of your momentum. That's part of building momentum, is you kind of let part of yourself go. I mean, that's exactly it. You let part of your, you don't. it's something you can't force. You just let it, it go. You let that part of your identity go. And if it's truly an, an integral part of your identity, it's going to come back or it's going to stay. Or you're going to find a way to access that part of you without the alcohol. And fortunately... The experiences I had where I just completely humiliated and embarrassed myself actually helped me as a sober person, too, because I, I realized, okay, if I can do that humiliating thing while I was drunk, that means I can also do it when I'm sober. And that, you know, it definitely hacked down my inhibitions as a sober person, knowing that I had also done something while drunk. Not to say I would do the things, oh, you know, because I puked all over myself, uh, you know, I'm going to, in a public place, I'm going to uh, puke all over myself when I'm sober. And of course, that's not what I mean. What I mean is just, you know, it made me more willing to interact in certain ways that I had been uncomfortable interacting when I was sober. And it probably led to me drinking so that I could access those, you know, modes of interaction or expression. But it made me realize, oh, okay, I don't have to be as inhibited when I'm sober because I know that I'm capable of breaking that down and humiliating myself. So why worry? Why worry about what someone thinks about this or that? So in that way, it was helpful. And that kind of goes hand in hand with what I was talking about with uh, making the decision or sorry, I've got decisions on the brain. Um, that kind of goes hand in hand with uh, 
what does it go hand in hand with? Let me think here. Uh, the idea of, uh, oh man, a, a total loss of brain. I'm, I'm only a little bit in my second cup of coffee. I probably need more if I'm actually going to talk about the things that go hand in hand. Um, anyway, I'll just, I'm just going to let that thought go. I lost it. It related to something I was thinking earlier. But something I do want to get into while I'm thinking of it is, uh, you know, in the same way that you have to make a daily decision to quit doing something, and it's going to be a process of quitting, it's the same thing for adding in new components to your life, productive components. And I think co-discipline or interdiscipline, multidiscipline, it doesn't matter what you call it, to me, that's been essential in recovering. You know, focusing on my health, working out, eating well, meditation. There's just these different disciplines, even creatively, because creativity is a whole other subject where so often our demons are associated with creativity. And even if you strip away all that stupid, pretentious artist bullshit of, I hate myself. I'm battling my arts and expression of battling my demons. All of my art comes from, you know, that deep, dark demon place. You know, it's like stripping all that away even on just like a, like a purely just entertainment level, it feels great to like drink or get high or do whatever and create. It feels great to indulge in other people's creativity, to listen to music, all of that. All of that is related. And in quitting drinking and quitting like, you know, whatever it is you're doing, you run the risk of not being able to access that. You've heard that before, surely, in some autobiography of some rock star where like, oh, I thought that, uh, you know, if I stopped using heroin and drinking a fifth of whiskey a day, I wasn't going to be able to write the songs that I was writing. Uh, I thought I, w I wasn't going to be able to, you know, draw the pretty pictures that I used to when I was high. You know, people think that way. And that is a real risk you, uh, possibly, you, you might possibly lose or it might just change the way you do things. And that is a big risk. So creativity is a weird one. And I think creativity is a large reason why some people don't quit doing things because they like the way they feel. They like what it does to their creative process. They like what it does to their appreciation of other people's creativity. Because that's another thing I miss. Oh, that was what I was going to say. I was going to bring up just the idea of, of missing you know, certain experiences and admitting that you miss that, being very honest with yourself. And I think another way that comes in is for me, it's like, Drinking like, you know, getting a bottle of whiskey or, you know, later before I quit, I had started just drinking vodka. But for me, there was a certain point in time where like, it's a Friday after work, hit total wine, get a bottle of whiskey and some beers, you know, hit the bong after, you know, you take a couple drink, have a couple drinks, hit the bong, turn the stereo up. And that's just fucking awesome. Just hanging out in your house with beautiful music cranking loud. You know, the alcohol and the weed is just working together perfect. It's early in the night. You're buzzing. You haven't hit full, you know, you haven't hit 100 miles an hour yet. You know, your night's not out of control. You're still very much in control, but you're just enjoying the weed high. You're enjoying the alcohol buzz and you're listening to your favorite music. Nothing really compares to that. And I do miss that. And I always will miss that. But I know what that leads to. It's like, like that situation is a gateway for me. And I can look back and think, oh, that was so fun. That was so fun coming home from the bar and like smoking a joint and listening to this music. I remember that night vividly somehow. 
but that's not that's something I can't do anymore. Uh, it's just something I can't do. And there are a lot of other things I can do now that are actually preferable at this point in my life. I don't know that these things would have been preferable then, but they are now. And for me, that's those multi-disciplines, those co-disciplines, and they've been so essential. And for me, that's fitness. You know, I'd started trying to get in shape, like I'd started running and I started lifting some light weights and trying to eat, eat a little better. But that was mostly to counteract the drinking and some of the other unhealthy things I did. It wasn't purely just to get in good shape. There's always that element of, oh, I'm, I'm going to try to balance out the other aspect of my lifestyle. But you reach a point where you're like, I'm getting kind of into this healthy thing and I'm kind of sick of doing this thing that negates or at best balances it. So I'd rather focus on the first thing. And in actually quitting drinking, I was able to go, okay, I'm going to go full steam into this and I'm going to try to get in as good of health, as good a health as I can, but it's going to require me to make a daily decision to work out or to eat right. It's just like not doing something. Doing something is just like not doing something. You heard it here, but it's true. You still have to make that decision. You know, you still have to decide, okay, I'm going to work out today. And that's a whole issue with adopting any kind of difficult but ultimately healthy lifestyle or practice. Let's just call it a practice, uh, like a doctor. Everything you do, it's a practice like a doctor does. Uh, but no, it's one of those things where you, you make the decision to, say, lose weight or get in shape or whatever it is, and you go to the gym and you're like, ah, that feels great. I'm going to post on Facebook, uh, and let everybody know, hey, everybody, I made the decision this year that I'm going to be uh, losing. My goal is to lose 50 pounds. And everyone goes, oh, congrats. Like people slap you on the back when you haven't even done anything. People congratulate you when you haven't even done anything. And it doesn't have to be online. People do this within their groups of friends. They do this privately. They do it at dinner. They'd be like, I'd like everybody to come out um, to dinner tonight. I have an announcement I'd like to make. And then they're like, uh, I've made the decision, guys, to, to lose 25 pounds. And everyone's like, oh, oh, congrats. And then they get this dopamine rush, and they feel like they've already done it. And they go to the gym once, and they're like, I did it. I went to the gym today. I did it. And then, oh, guess what? Two days later, you got to go back. If you actually want to do what it is that you say that you're going to do, you got to go back. You got to make the decision to go back. And you're going to be really fucking sore from that first day at the gym. But you got to go back. You got to make that absolute decision. And it's going to be a difficult decision for some people, depending on how sore you are, depending on how tired you are. But you have to go back if you're going to do it. You have to keep making that decision. Uh, you have to keep planning that. You have to keep making time for that. Just like you may have made time for unhealthy behaviors, for things that weren't serving you, you have to make time for the things that serve you, and you have to keep making that decision. And the worst thing you can do is try to get some sort of pat on the back before you even do anything. But people do that constantly because they want, they feel like announce, making an announcement is what's going to reinforce it for them. And for some people, that might be true. They might be able to make an announcement, and because other people know about it, it motivates them to actually stick to it. But that's just like a weird codependent. You know, it, I see so much codependence, both in the way people drink as well as the way people recover. And I think that's okay. I think that's just how some people are. Some people need people. 
like around them all the time. And I don't know, you know, I, I saw it with drinking and it was always interesting to me, you know, there's people that you get blackout drunk with and close the bar out with. And there's a lot of people that who do that all the time and they drink all the time, but they still play this little game where they go, you know, you're sitting at the bar and they're like, well, I was thinking about getting another, another drink. Uh, what about you? And it's like, we both know that we're going to drink until this place fucking closes. We both know we're going to drink until we go to bed. You know, what is this game of like, well, I just had this weird wild, I've been at the bar for two hours, but I just had this wild hair that uh, I might get another drink, but only if you do. That's how some people present it. And it's like, I'm getting another fucking drink and so are you. And that mentality, while it was destructive when I was drinking, because I was just like, I don't give a fuck what it looks like. I'm going to go up and get another drink. I'm not going to play this game of like, we're going to go up together. And get our seventh drink together. We're going to do this together. You know, it's like, even though it was destructive, because I wasn't that way. Because I was very independent in my drinking. And I was like, I'm going to go out and buy booze if I want booze. I'm going to go get another drink if I want another drink. Even though that was very destructive when I was doing that, it has, uh, I've been able to apply it to the recovery process. In that it's that same sort of fierce independence where I'm just like, I'm going to do it my own way. I know I'm going to do this. I'm going to find my own way to do it. I don't care if anybody supports me, although support is so valuable. Nobody can, I mean, anything I could possibly say about support has already been said very well by other people. And so all the textbook stuff about having some form of support, whether it's on an individual basis or whether you do need to go be part of a group, no matter what, Nobody can take that away. And just because I'm rallying against codependence doesn't mean that I don't see the value in support because that's essential. Knowing that people are there for you, knowing that people will talk to you about the things that you are struggling with is important. And if they can give you good advice on top of that, hell yeah. Hell yeah. Um, and they might be people who still do the thing that you don't do. That's an important thing too because just like I said, people have a tendency to like join these groups and think, it was all bad. It was all bad. All those great summer nights I had, you know, that, that night, you know, where we hung out, you know, and just sipped beers and talked about our lives. And we felt, I felt like I really bonded with my friends. That was bad too, because there was booze involved. And you, you can't think that way. To me, it's like, it's very similar to like when someone you know breaks up with uh, their significant other and all their friends go, yeah, they sucked anyway. Yeah, they sucked. I hated your boyfriend. I hated your girlfriend. I hated your ex-wife. You know, when people do that, it's so sick. And it, it sets up such an awkward situation if that person were to get back together with them. Uh, but uh, you don't want to do that about your own, you know, past either. You don't want to, if you spent like two years in a relationship with someone, you don't, even if it ended badly or there were downsides to the, to the relationship, I don't think there's anything healthy about going and, and saying it was all bad. Because it ended up the way it did, it was all bad. And I would say the exact same thing for drinking. And it's important, I think, for the recovery process to accept that there were some good experiences. And there's a reason why you weren't just drawn to the self-destruction. You were drawn to these good moments. But the good moments became harder and harder to access. And that's pretty much anybody's substance abuse story, is chasing those good moments. There's a reason why they say the cliche is chasing the dragon. I mean, that's something that happens... Even outside of substance abuse, you know, chasing a certain high. I mean, people do that in relationships and friendships, you know. Um, 
They're just chasing that high. But that doesn't mean you have to go back and be a revisionist about your entire history with a substance. You can look at the good moments, but don't be, don't be tricked. You know, you can look back and be like, oh, there were some really fun times I had, but you can't let that trick you either. You can't look at that and be like, oh, well, there were some fun times. Maybe I could, you know, maybe if I start drinking again, it'll be fun again. Because what I've seen from people who have quit and then started again, they immediately have a dark cloud over their head. They immediately know what they're doing is bad, and it immediately taps into that self-destructive side again. Because I think when that self-destructive side is activated and you get away from it and then you go back to something like drinking, you're going to fall right back in pretty quickly to that self-destructive side because you already know that you're doing something. You've already let yourself down for one. And I heard this recently and it stood out to me where someone was talking about when a celebrity goes into rehab and then comes out, that person can never drink again. They can never be seen drinking again because people are immediately going to think not, oh, he's having a beer and maybe he's got it under control. They are immediately going to think, oh, he's fucked up again. He's, he's down in that hole again. And it's probably true. And the fact that people see it that way kind of reinforces it. And kind of that person's maybe going to be a little more secretive. They're going to kind of hide the fact that they're drinking because everybody knows they were in rehab. And so that itself becomes another, you know, horrible thing, the fact that they're hiding it. Even if they're having good times, which they probably aren't, but even if they are having a good time with alcohol after relapsing, the fact that they have to kind of hide it or the fact that people psychically are just like, oh, he's got a problem again, back, back in the abyss, you know, so that's, and that's a good reason to stay sober, you know, knowing that you can never be, you'll never be seen as someone who just has a good time ever again. People will always, people who know about your history will always know, and they'll always kind of have an eyebrow raised, even if they, they have problems too. Even if they never stopped, they're still going to kind of raise their eyebrow. Uh, so yeah, um, but to get back to, you know, the idea of like the positive decisions you're making and co-disciplines, those are so important. I'm so glad that I started working out and trying to eat better before I quit drinking because it just, it was something I could just do right away. And I would recommend if you're drinking right now or, you know, using anything, try to start making some healthy, develop some healthy disciplines now because it's going to make it so much easier when you quit. It's going to make it so much easier when you're quitting. Just to get back to that, I have to emphasize that, the fact that it's a process of quitting, not having quit. And it's going to make it so much easier if you have these co-disciplines. And you'll find that they really enhance each other and they are more similar than, you know, it's like you would never think like, oh, you know, practicing the tuba for an hour a day, that discipline, you would never think like offhand, that's the same thing as going to football practice or, you know, uh, training for a marathon, but really it is. I mean, you're doing, you know, when you take away the actual physical behavior, you're basically doing the same thing. You're deciding to stick with something to improve at it. And ideally, you know, you're going to benefit your life in some way by doing it over and over again and getting better at it in it becoming more ingrained in your life. And so you see where these disciplines bleed into each other. And I think for something like diet and exercise, for me, it was like I initially was, you know, I used to exercise but still eat shitty and still drink because I had that idea of like wanting to balance it out. I was like, I don't want to gain weight. I don't want to, uh, 
I don't want to, you know, just completely lose myself. So I'm going to exercise just to kind of balance out the other aspects of my lifestyle. But the more that I exercised, the more I was like, you know, I don't like the idea of, you know, going out and eating like a fucking plate of chicken tenders or whatever else, something worse. You know, I, I, I don't like the idea of eating all these nachos after I've been working out just as some sort of balance thing. I'd rather, you know, I'd rather... Th- I'd rather that the exercise, you know, has a little bit of the advantage. I'd rather, I'd rather have the idea that the exercise is improving me just a little rather than just balancing me out. So maybe I'll eat a little bit better. And then in eating better, you feel better and that enhances your workout. And so these things form this direct relationship. And that one's very obvious because it's diet and exercise. There's a reason why those things go hand in hand. That's the reason why there's a reason why everybody talks about those two things together. It's obvious. But the same is true for other disciplines, you know, and and if you start doing something else like meditating, uh, getting into some sort of religious or spiritual practice, I think there's a reason why that's emphasized so much by groups. There's a reason why people who have quit some sort of substance have some sort of spiritual epiphany or are, are able to have, for me, it wasn't that it gave me a spiritual epiphany. It's that I was able to access earlier spiritual epiphanies and actually do more with them. Not to say that I was able to actually like do something tangible, but I was able to kind of integrate them into my being. And I don't know, they, they contributed to some sort of harmony or pursuit of harmony for me in having those epiphanies and also knowing that I had had them before during darker times, but I wasn't able to really do as much with them. I wasn't able to really add them to my life. It was just, it was almost more of like an intellectual thing. Like, oh, it's interesting that I had that experience. It's interesting that we, you know, cause a lot of the more powerful experiences I've had have not just been me. They've been things that have been shared with other people, which is always great because that way you, you know you're not fucking crazy. <laughs> you know, you have some sort of strange epiphany in conjunction with another person that they're aware of or some sort of weird synchronicity or, or just crazy experience. Some of these things are hard to define and we don't even have placeholder words for them. Uh, but some of these things, uh, we... You know, when when they're shared with another person, it's great. But you don't want to depend on another person. To get back to the codependency idea, you know, if it's a spiritual idea, and I'm going to get away from that because I know I think a lot of people don't like that, and I don't want to, I don't want to reveal too much about that. It's personal, whatever. Even though it involves the entire universe, it's somehow personal. <laughs> if I was talking about science, though, everybody's ears would perk up. You can say as much as you want about that, but the second you start talking about things that are hard to define. And involve, you know, I don't know. I'll get away from that. Um, but you know, in the same way that codependency can be bad, or or just or just hold you back a little bit. Um, I spilled coffee, but it's fortunately cold. It's on my leg. A bear. I, I'm in shorts, and it's like lukewarm coffee on a bare leg. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what that means. Lukewarm coffee on a bare leg. Tell me what it means. Tell me what that poem means. Well, actually, it was a spiritual epiphany. You know, it connects to the universe, but that's personal. Lukewarm coffee on a bare leg. Not a bear's leg. Not a grizzly bear's leg. Just a, a bear man. The leg of a man. Leg of man. All right, where were we? Uh, yeah, the, the idea, like, it, sometimes it's like having those shared experiences is important. So that's why it's like you can't do everything alone. And sometimes having that shared experience, you know, is a way, uh, you know, of just reinforcing the fact that you're not crazy. 
But I think when it comes to like making healthy decisions, it's like going to the gym or eating healthy. You can't be codependent about that. You have to do it on your own. And in the same way that say my drinking was extra destructive because I would go, I don't give a fuck like what anybody thinks. I don't give a fuck like whether the person I'm with is getting another drink. I'm going to get one. In the same way that I had that and it added to the level of destruction in my life, I can apply the same mentality toward you know working out or making healthy decisions where I don't need anybody else to do it with me. I don't need anybody else to hold my hand. I'm going to do it no matter what. And I think that fierce independence is important. Uh, and I don't know that it works for everybody. I mean, people obviously have different levels of social needs and social reinforcement. But if you're trying to make healthy decisions and you are depending on another person, I don't think it's going to work unless you can somehow bridge the gap and start doing it on your own. Because I've known a lot of people who have started going to the gym. I mean, I remember coworkers years ago, a couple of them were like, hey, you want to be my, like my gym buddy? Which is like, hell no. I actually don't even want to be your buddy because you use the phrase gym buddy. I don't, I don't want to have anything to do with you because of the way, because <laughs> of the terminology you use about going to the gym. But no, it's true. Like people do that. My gym buddy. And it's like, hell no. Hell no. I'm, I'm not going to be your gym buddy. And if you're serious about going to the gym, fucking go. But they won't. People want their hand to be held. They're afraid to go to the fucking movies. Think about this. Some people are so self-conscious and paralyzed in fear. And this isn't a criticism. This is just a brutal truth. Some people are so self-conscious and paralyzed in fear that they can't even go to the movies by themselves without feeling like a total piece of shit. And that's sad. I'm not mocking someone for feeling that way. But people take that same mentality when it comes to like recovery and going to the gym and stuff. And I think it holds them back. I think that having kind of an aggro, intense attitude about it isn't wrong. You know, if, if anger was a part of your drinking, which through some sheer miracle, anger wasn't very common with drinking for me. You know, like I wasn't a, a person who stirred up fights or started shit with people. I mean, there were times, you know, I'm not going to say that, uh, you know, I'm totally innocent of that. There were times where things weren't going well in my life and I got angry when I was drunk or something. But I definitely wasn't an angry drunk overall through some sheer miracle. A needy drunk, maybe. I don't know. I, I certainly had issues. Um, but uh, I definitely, uh, I don't know, get away from that experience. But, uh, you know, I, th I think that fierce independence and having a little bit of an aggressive attitude of like, I'm going to do it my way. Even if you're in a program, even if you're in this, I think having a little bit of that fierce independence, a little bit of that aggro energy can add something. And, and having a little bit of that me against the world attitude in healthy ways uh, can greatly contribute to the recovery process because a lot of the substance abuse issues, especially alcohol, is this you have this me against the world attitude about substance abuse. It's like it's me against the world and my it's me and my case of beer against the world. It's me and my whiskey bottle against the world. Everyone else has let me down. Everyone else is frustrating. It's me against the world. And you know, you don't want to tap into that same headspace that you had while you were drinking or whatever, but I think you can tap into a similar headspace in recovery and be like, you know what, I'm going to fucking do this against all odds. I'm going to climb this mountain and just do it. And whatever, you know, side of the, the cliff face, you know, when I'm on that side of the cliff face going up, you know, I might not have a choice 
about which rocks I can grab that are going to take me to the top. But through sheer determination and force of will, I'm going to get to the top. And then you realize, oh, I'm never going to get to the top. And that's what discourages a lot of people. And that's what I mean when the momentum dies, when you're like, oh, shit, I'm actually, I've been climbing this cliff wall and I actually realize I'm never going to get up there. And I hope you're imagining the Princess Bride right now. <laughs> Even though they use a rope to get up, well, Wesley, he climbs the last part um, just on his own. He does exactly what I'm doing and he does reach the top. But I think what you realize in recovery is like, oh, I'm never actually going to reach the top. And I have to just enjoy this process. It's in the same way that you're never going to truly quit. You're going to be in the process of quitting. And you're not going to be able to choose where you climb. But you just got to keep climbing. And soon that just becomes, you know, part of who you are. And you, it becomes easier. Like, like just because you don't reach the top doesn't mean that it doesn't become easier. Because I think it does. But you can't trick yourself with that either. You can't ever say, this is easy. You always have to, you know, treat it like a challenge in the same way that you must continue to make that decision to do or not to do a certain behavior. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can